0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Danny Shapiro. She is the best selling author of two memoirs, Devotion and Slow Motion, and has published five novels, including Black and White and Family History. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, Elle, The New York Times Book Review, and The Los Angeles Times. Shapiro is a contributing editor at Travel and Leisure. Her new book is called Still Writing, The Perils and Pleasures of a Creative Life. We began by talking about her new book and how she came to write a nonfiction book about the writing life.
1: Well, about five years ago, maybe a little bit more, my publisher at the time was really urging me to blog, which was something that I did any particular interest in doing and I don't you know didn't read a lot of blogs and I thought to myself well what can I blog about or you know write about in that way on a regular basis that isn't going to just drive me crazy what could be compelling and interesting enough in an ongoing way like you know where where the well wouldn't run dry and it wasn't really a conscious decision it wasn't an intellectual decision it's just that when I sat down to start to try to do this new form of thing, it was the creative process. And it wasn't, I mean, I've taught for a long time, but it wasn't craft so much that interested me to write about. In fact, craft doesn't even interest me that much to think about. It was more process, what an artist of any kind goes through to get to the work, uh, to get to the canvas, to the sculpture, to the page, getting past the resistance and the, the feelings of inadequacy and self censorship, and even self loathing, and just all of it. it's like a it's like a minefield that the artist has to kind of like navigate every day in order to get to the work. And I navigate that every day, and I think I just wanted to try to write about that, so I did. And I would put up these blog posts, and I would almost instantly start getting get these responses from other writers, from well known writers, from peers from writers that I admired and from brand new writers. And they all pretty much were saying, please keep writing about this. I really needed to read this today. This really helped me. So I just kept doing it, you know, not a lot, maybe once a week, maybe once every two weeks. I've never been a very prolific blogger. But at at some point the question started morphing into, well, so when's the book coming out? And I wasn't writing a book about that. I was really, I I did not, it'd be really easy to sort of reverse engineer this and look back and say, oh, you know, you must have started this in order to eventually turn it into a book, but I didn't. But at some point I realized that people were actually asking me for a book, which is not something that typically happens to a writer. You know, usually I'm kind of waiting and impatiently for the next book to reveal itself. And in the case of still writing, people were really just clamoring for it and saying, please, will you w- write more about this? Will you write a book about it? So so I did.
0: So I... I... I noticed that there's a general theme throughout your book, and it comes out in many different ways, that writing is, is you have to be comfortable with not knowing.
1: Yes. Yeah. And, you know, all these years that I've taught, um, I think it's one of the things that my students find most helpful and liberating is, is that I think every writer alone in her room who is working on a piece of fiction and really doesn't know where it's going has this feeling of maybe doing it wrong. Like maybe all the other writers are out there really confidently knowing exactly where they're going and exactly what they're doing. And and it's just not true. We, we really, I mean, with the exception perhaps of certain genre writers, like perhaps mystery writers, thriller writers. Um, otherwise, you know, E.L. Doctorow has that beautiful... Line about writing, which is that it's like driving a car down the road at night in the fog and you can only see as far as your headlights, but you can get all the way home that way. You have to be willing, I think, to be in that state of not knowing, and that state of not knowing can be very uncomfortable.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Danny Shapiro. She is the best-selling author of two memoirs, Devotion and Slow Motion, and has published five novels, including Black and White and Family History. Her latest book is called Still Writing, The Perils and Pleasures of a Creative Life. One of the things that you write about that I thought was interesting is about how we do need some structure around us and You were talking about that in terms of the room or the chair you sit in. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about that. You were just talking about how if you have that sort of predictable space, that can help you in in the unknowing process of writing to have something safe around you.
1: There was a point where my desk and my computer and the general way that I had been working started really kind of going stale on me. Uh, My desk... I mean, I'm sitting at my desk right now talking to you, and it's a mess. It's full of the the, the detritus of domestic life. I have school forms on my desk. I have party invitations on my desk. I have to-do lists on my desk. These all are enemies of the work, I think. And and so I was in a shop in my uh, little town where I live in northwestern Connecticut, and I saw this chaise, this beautiful piece of furniture. It was upholstered in this antique Tibetan blanket and very soft and very beautiful kind of jewel-like colors and, and just kind of small kind of the perfect shape and very streamlined. And I looked at this chaise and it was really expensive and I'm not in the habit of buying furniture, um, at all, or much less, um, uh, impulsively, but I took pictures of it and I walked around with pictures of it on my iPhone and I would look at it longingly. And I went back a couple of times to the shop and it was still there. And and then finally, I just thought, you know what? The reason why I want that chev is because I'll write in it. It will be the place where I write. Uh, it'll be the place where I read for my Soul for my sustenance. It, it I need something to break this kind of bad place that I'm in in terms of uh, the you know my habits and the way that I'm working. And I justified it uh, to myself by saying, you know, I would buy a new computer if I needed one. So I'm, I'm gonna get this chaise and I did and I brought it home and I'm looking at it right now as I'm talking to you. And it is in fact my little sanctuary. It really became I wrote all of still writing. Sitting on that chaise. In fact, I actually thought that the book jacket of Still Writing would actually end up having a chaise on it, which it does not. But they tried it. It just—it looked too much like a shrink's couch. Um, but it was really something that I intuited, that I knew that I needed, that would create a kind of dedicated sacred space. And the thing is, and I, you know, I've talked a lot to a lot of different writers about this. For everyone, is different. I mean, I have friends who write only in cafes. Um, I have friends who write only in one particular cafe, others who move around. I have a friend who I wrote about and Still Writing who writes on the subway. She likes to write on the subway. It helps her to be kind of surrounded by just teeming humanity. I mean, I could no more do that than fly to the moon. I could never write on the subway. There's so many different ways of creating whatever that space is and whatever that, you know, that that making the time and the space and the moment sacred. I, I was on a panel in Miami with this really interesting writer. His name is Josh Harnagheny, and he has Tourette's, uh, very severe Tourette's. And he wrote this book called The World's Strongest Librarian. And at one point on the panel, he talked about how he can only write for 15 minutes a day because when he sits down to write, his Tourette's Tourette's goes wherever his attention goes. And so when he turns his attention to his work, his Tourette's goes there too. And so he can only do it for about 15 minutes before he starts completely twitching out and being unable to function. And it was just such an amazing story to me because I thought 15 minutes. He wrote this really wonderful book in 15 minutes a day because he put he took those 15 minutes and made them absolutely sacred. There's just an incredible lesson in that, I think for all writers.
0: Yes, and sometimes you're just not in the mood to write.
1: Well, right, because I think one of the other misconceptions about writing is that it's, you know, fun, like capital F fun. You know, I think it's it can be enormously satisfying and you know the end of a good writing day. There's nothing like it. I mean, it's a really amazing feeling of just having been kind of wrung out in 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 the best possible way. But at the same time, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to go there. It's hard. It's hard to get there. And and so we do. You know, I think I think some people think that we like we gaily skip to the skip to the computer. I mean, I I never know what to say when at a dinner party or a cocktail party or something, somebody will say to me, oh, you're a writer, how fun. (laughs) I always feel like I'm just kind of standing there looking at them like, I, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's so many things, but I wouldn't describe fun as one of them.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Danny Shapiro. She is the best-selling author of two memoirs, Devotion and Slow Motion, and has published five novels, including Black and White and Family History. Her latest book is called Still Writing, The Perils and Pleasures of a Creative Life. So how do you overcome that fear that you're talking about when you sit down to write, and maybe anxiety as well?
1: I think that the feeling of having not had a good writing day, you know the feeling of having gotten in my own way is like this, the the not doing it eventually becomes more painful than doing it. it. And also, I've got to say it this is this happens in different stages. I mean, I think one of the more gratifying aspects of being a novelist and a memoirist of you know being someone who writes book length works most of the time is that even though finding my way in, May, may be very, very challenging. Once I'm inside a book, it's kind of, at a certain point, once it's really taken hold of me, it has a heartbeat. It feels alive to me. It feels like it's waiting for me. And, and also, I think that, for me, one of the greatest impetuses that I have and why I do what I do is that I, I, I live with a certain fear of being misunderstood, of not of not saying exactly what I want to say, of not getting it right, of being seen as other than who I am. And so when I write, I exert some control over that. I, I have an opportunity to try to get it right on the page, to try to reveal... What I'm trying to reveal in exactly the way and exactly the word that I can best muster, and that usually uh, trumps the, you know, the the anxiety, the fear, the vulnerability, um, the the resistance that is always there. It's always standing between the writer and the page. It's just a question of how effectively you can you can navigate. Uh, your way around those obstacles.
0: Well, one of the things you mentioned is, you know, when you get in and it has this heartbeat, um, y- you're in there. But you also write um, in your book about the difficulty of the middle of a book, and I'm wondering if you can mm-hmm. talk about that.
1: Yeah, well, in fact, actually, one of, one of my favorite passages is at the very beginning of middles. I was having coffee with a friend of mine who was a poet, and I said. I'm in the middle of working on a book and I feel like I'm in the middle of the ocean and there's no land in sight. And he said to me, yeah, and you're building the boat. And I love that so much because there is that feeling like my my husband, who's also a writer, uh, he describes it as building a skyscraper from the top down. You know, you can't really know. and, And again, it goes back to the not knowing. You can't really know if it's going to work. And you can't even really think about whether it's going to work, because if you do, you will become paralyzed. I I often feel that the very best part of working on a book for the writer is near the end, you know, where you're not quite at the end, but you can feel that sense of, you know, yes, this thing that I was trying to do, this is actually, you know, th- this is working. I, I can, cons- the the universe starts to kind of um, conspire to help you in a certain way. You 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 know, everything that you see, the weather, you know, dialogue, you know, a scarf that someone's wearing, the sound of a bird, whatever it is all starts sort of feeding the machine, it starts feeding the novel near the end, and it's such an incredibly exciting and kind of momentum-driven kind of feeling, but you're not at the end yet, so there's not that feeling of sort of devastation and desperation at having reached the end, and which also means the limits of your own gifts, the limits of you know what you hoped to accomplish and what you are in fact able to accomplish. I actually heard Michael Cunningham talk about this recently. We were on a panel together, and he talked precisely about that feeling of depression that settles in after finishing a book because it's never, it can never meet the utopian ideal. You know, the 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 absolute pure essence of what you had hoped it might be when you began. But when you're in the middle, the middle is really, I think, um, a time of putting one's head down and just moving forward and, again, being in this kind of state of acceptance about not knowing, not knowing um, exactly what's going to be revealed. Because some of the best parts of writing fiction are when one's characters are like one step ahead of one where the writer is really sitting there almost watching the characters as if they're you know as, as if they're in a play or in a movie or, or, or right in front of right in front of you with this feeling of like god I didn't I can't believe she just said that you''re you're, you're not in control at that point point. Uh, and that's the best possible news that you're not in control and that's that's the other part that I think that writers early on, often lose sight of or don't know. They think, again, that there's something wrong with them that they don't know and that their characters are saying things that they didn't intend for their characters to say or do. But that's precisely the stuff that's the richest and most alive in a work of fiction is the very material that's surprising the writer as the, writer, as the writer's working on it.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Danny Shapiro. She is the best-selling author of two memoirs, Devotion and Slow Motion, and has published five novels, including Black and White and Family History. Her latest book is called Still Writing, The Perils and Pleasures of a Creative Life. I'm wondering if you could read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer.
1: I have my very, very ancient copy of Mrs. Dalloway here. This one is very well-loved. And so this is, this is not from the opening. It's from a little bit into um, Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway. She had reached the park gates. She stood for a moment looking at the omnibuses in Piccadilly. She would not say of anyone in the world now that they were this or were that. She felt very young, at the same time unspeakably aged. She sliced like a knife through everything at the same time was outside, looking on. She had a perpetual sense as she walked, watched the taxicabs of being out, out, far out to sea and alone. She always had the feeling that it was very, very dangerous to live even one day. Not that she thought of herself as clever or much out of the ordinary. How she had got through life on the few twigs of knowledge Fraulein Daniels gave them, she could not think. She knew nothing, no language, no history. She scarcely read a book now except memoirs in bed. And yet to her, it was absolutely absorbing. All this, the cabs passing. And she would not say of Peter. She would not say of herself. I am this. I am that. Her only gift was knowing people almost by instinct, she thought, walking on. If you put her in a room with someone, up went her back like a cat's or sheep heard.
0: So tell me about why you chose this.
1: I think Virginia Woolf does interior life like, like nobody else. There is such a quality of, I mean, the whole opening of Mrs. Dalloway, Clarissa Dalloway is doing errands, you know, she's walking through the streets of London, and yet nothing is happening. Nothing is I mean, it's she's just doing. She's a woman going about her business. But what in fact is happening is this very rich, very textured inner life, and that inner life is the whole thing. It's it's you know when she talks about um, that she's always thought it'd be very dangerous to live even one single day. She's not talking about the outer world. She's talking about the inner world. And I just I just love that. and and there's such a slowness to it. There's such a I mean, it doesn't feel slow when you read it, but there's such a slowness to actually what her very carefully observed interior life and thought process is.
0: Can you read something that you wrote? It could be something that you found really difficult to write or something that changed from the first draft or something you feel you succeeded at?
1: Yeah, I actually was thinking about that. and I went back to an old short story of mine. Uh, It's a story called The Six Poisons uh, that was published in One Story magazine. Um, And I would say this story took me about a year and a half to write. Um, And really, I don't mean like I put it down, I picked it up, I put it down, I picked it up. I mean, it was really one of the things on a front burner for me for over a year. And it was because it's, set in India. It's set in a yoga shala in Mysore, India, and I had never been uh, in Mysore, India, though I have spent a fair amount of time in yoga studios. And it's a story in which two half-sisters who haven't seen each other in years and who are estranged run into each other on the other side of the world. So it really had to be set on the other side of the world from New York where they live. And I think it took me a long time to give myself, really truly give myself permission to write about a place that I had never been. So I'll, I'm going to read you a passage from kind of the middle of the story. The chanting comes to an end, and the tan guy rolls up his mat. One more now, announces Guruji. The shala is always full, each of the ten spaces taken up. As soon as one student finishes, another student who has been waiting behind the curtain or along the stairs, quietly pads in and takes that spot. A small woman with long, wavy hair falling over her face parts the curtain. Emma sees her. She should not be seeing anything. Her gaze should be soft and unfocused, but soft and unfocused aren't her specialty, and feels an electrical ping, a shock shooting up her spine. For a moment, she thinks she's hallucinating. The chanting has released a vision, but no. Now the vision is bending over, unrolling her mat. The vision's hair, that unmistakable hair, brushes the floor like a dust mop. A thin red string encircles her wrist, one of those Kabbalah bracelets you're supposed to wear until it falls off. It would be just like Rebecca to wear a Kabbalah bracelet. Emma and Rebecca both live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and have managed to avoid each other for the last ten years. They take the same subways, shop at the same grocery stores, browse the self-help section on the second floor of the Barnes & Noble. Once a few years ago, Emma thought she saw Rebecca in line for the cashier at Cinderella. Emma quickly put her basket full of vegetables and pasta down on the market floor and fled the wrong way through the entrance. Emma's body knows before she does. What were the chances? A very unyogic feeling. And suddenly her heart starts beating fast, too fast, and the sweat along her brow becomes cold, clammy. She keeps moving, though, through the series of Surya Namaskar bees riding a long breath from forward bend into chaturanga and then into upward-facing dog. Her eyes drift to the spot where Rebecca now stands, head bowed, hands in prayer over her heart. Emma watches as her lips move as she makes some sort of silent affirmation. Each practice begins with a dedication and intention. Emma's intention has been the same each morning since arriving in Mysore. She has closed her eyes and prayed to a God she doesn't even believe in begging, really, offering up one single word, peace, by which she means nothing so noble as peace peace on earth, peace within herself. That's what she's been longing for. That's why she's here. And now, well, now forget about it. Her whole body tenses. Her muscles harden in anticipation. Rebecca's here, here in Mysore.
0: So how do you feel like you got it?
1: I think... Ultimately, you know, and I didn't read a passage that really has to do with, like, the, the the sensory aspects of India, which there's a lot of in the story. I think, well, I know what happened, actually. I struggled, and I struggled, and I struggled, and I beat my head against the wall, and I wrote draft after draft that were smoothly written in a lot of ways and um, had good things about them. But the story wasn't, like, it just, the story, I knew the story, but it wasn't, it wasn't. Alive in the way that I wanted it to be, in terms of really being inside of that place and time and that world. And and one day I got the flu, uh, and I, I rarely get sick, and I was sick as a dog, and I I had a fever, and it like went on for days. And in the feverish state, something happened to me where it just sort of cracked open, and I I started. I've been reading, researching a lot of blogs of people who have spent time in India. They were really very helpful to me of just, you know, kind of really getting inside of people who had gone to Mysore where there was a famous yoga teacher named Pitabi Joyce and and all of a sudden the whole thing kind of cracked open for me and I and I and I arrived at the voice. It was like my being physically ill loosened my own inhibitions and fears that I couldn't do it and that fears, um, you know, cause I was trying something new in that I certainly had written about a lot that I hadn't experienced before, but I hadn't written something set in that, that distant and that remote and unavailable to me a place. And then suddenly it was like in my fever, I was there, you know, I was there on the rickshaw. I was there smelling the, the scent, the, the scent of, 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 petrol in the air I was, you know, there smelling the coconuts, you know, smashed on the, you know, on the on 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 the on the ground. I was just there and and from that point on, it probably took me like 4 days to redraft this story that it had taken me a year and a half to find.
0: Where do you write?
1: I write on my chaise in my little office in my home um in Connecticut a- and um, I love to write in an empty house with my dogs by my feet sitting on my chaise.
0: And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I do a few different things. I mean, I I have a yoga practice that is how I sort of restart my clock in a way, how I restart. It's the one way I know how to restart my head. If I've, if my head feels very kind of noisy or clogged, I drive. I live in a really beautiful part of the country, and sometimes I will just get into my car and take a drive to get away. I also like to cook, and I like to entertain, and um, and have friends over, and travel—all all things that really have to do with being, you know, being away from away from my desk.
0: And who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: My husband—he um, is my first reader, and he's been my first reader for the past seventeen years. He's a writer as well, and he's also very hard on me. Um, in a way that I always know has my best interests uh, at heart,
0: and how have you dealt with rejection?
1: my My recovery time uh, has improved over the years. Um, now I just sort of you know lick my wounds and get back to work. But you know I think rejection is simply a fact of every writer's life, of every of every creative person's life, of perhaps everybody's life full stop.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: I would say today my favorite word is discernment.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Danny Shapiro, author of the book, Still Writing, The Perils and Pleasures of a Creative Life. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.